0: If you have a copy of the Bible, please turn in it to Mark chapter 16, uh, the Gospel of Mark, the second book of the New Testament. And we'll read this morning Mark 16, verses 1 through 7. The text that I wish to preach from this morning is verse 7, but I want to be sure we read it in context. Please follow along as I read Mark chapter 16, verses one through seven. when the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Let's pray once more together. Father, we pray through Your inspired and inerrant and holy Word, uh, You would come and speak to us. Make the Word alive to us this morning. We pray, Father, that You would come and be our teacher by the Holy Spirit. And that You would show us things that perhaps we've not yet seen in Your Word. That You would show us Christ, Him crucified, Him risen. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I wonder if you can remember an actual day or maybe a season of life uh, when you came to know and believe yourself that Jesus Christ had actually risen from the dead. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home, you were always taught that, and you can never remember a time not believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Uh, But perhaps there are others, maybe it slowly dawned on you that perhaps in fact this man Jesus, this great teacher, uh, this one who was regarded as the Messiah, Uh, Maybe, in fact, He had risen. Maybe I've not considered this, and you were uh, convinced through considering what is taught in the Bible or various arguments and proofs that are put out there by various apologists. I wonder if you can remember the day when this became clear to you that Jesus is alive, that He is the Son of God, that He is a Savior for sinners who lives even now as the resurrected Lord. I want us to consider this morning the resurrection and its implications through the eyes of Peter, the disciple. And I want us to ask the question, what did the resurrection mean to Peter? As he is told himself that Jesus lives, the Lord himself wants Peter with him. What realities would begin to dawn on him in the moments and hours and days after the resurrection? Mark 16, verse 7, alone among the gospel accounts, acknowledges this detail. The angel instructed the women, go and tell the disciples and Peter I don't think that means that Peter was not a disciple. It was that in this there was a special word for Peter uh, that the Lord, through the angel, wished to communicate to Peter himself. And it's that special word and its implications that I want us to consider this morning. Now, if you're familiar at all with Christianity, you know at least something about Peter. Peter was a Jew, he was a common fisherman. And he was drawn into Jesus' service by Jesus himself, who personally invited Peter to follow him. In fact, those were the very words that Jesus gave to Peter. He found Peter and he instructed Peter, follow me. And that is what Peter did. More than that, he followed Christ for over three years throughout his earthly ministry. Uh, If you're familiar with Peter's story, you know that he was a very up and down kind of disciple. Uh, There were in his discipleship with the Lord remarkable expressions of courage and faith, as well as notable expressions of failure and disappointment on Peter's part. None greater than in the final hours of Jesus' life, when Peter abandons Jesus to die, and even denies three times that he ever knew Jesus. The night that his Lord is betrayed, and the morning that he is crucified, Peter is nowhere to be found. He who had heard the words from the lips of Jesus, follow me, the one who had followed Jesus for three, three and a half years, had witnessed so many miracles, had heard his sermons and his teachings. He's actually not there when his Lord is being crucified on a Roman cross. He is nowhere to be found. While Jesus is on the cross and later in the grave, Peter is in hiding, in darkness and in shame. And you might imagine those hours as Jesus is being crucified and after as he is buried in the tomb, you might imagine being Peter. In those hours, with the death of Jesus, all that once seemed bright and sure was gone as far as Peter was concerned. Everything was in question. Nothing that he had ever believed in his life could be trusted. Peter was in every way desperate and hopeless. Peter was lost. Well, this is the context in which the angel instructs the women. The angel says to them, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid Him. But go, tell His disciples and Peter that He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him just as He told you. What did it mean for Peter that Jesus rose from the dead? What would begin to dawn in his mind as this word came to his ears. Let's consider that question this morning under three headings. What did it mean for Peter that Jesus rose from the dead? Number one, that Jesus was in fact the longed-for Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. What did it mean for Peter that Jesus rose from the dead? It meant number one, that Jesus was in fact the longed-for Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. As best we can tell, the very first time Peter ever heard Jesus was from his brother, Andrew. Uh, this is recorded for us in John 1. On that occasion, Jesus is first introduced to Peter as the Messiah. Andrew tells him, we have found the Messiah. I'll read that account in John 1, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He, that is Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. First time Peter's introduced to Jesus, it's through the evangelism of his brother, who tells him, We have found the long for Messiah. We've found the Christ. And of course, Peter meets him himself, and Peter himself eventually came to believe. Not just on Andrew's testimony, but believed himself that Jesus was in fact the Christ. Uh, So there are a number of places where Peter's faith in who the person of Jesus was as the Christ, the Son of God, is reflected. The most well-known is recorded in a couple of places. It's Peter's profession of faith at Caesarea Philippi. I'll just read the record from Matthew 16. You can just listen as I read. There in verse 13 we read, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Then they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. At this point, Peter's confidence that Jesus was who he said he was and who he demonstrated himself to be could not have been stronger, at least it appears that way Peter felt he could be sure so sure he staked his whole life on it that Jesus was the Christ the Son of God the Savior of the world but Peter's understanding of who Jesus was particularly as the Messiah as the Son of God did not include him dying on a Roman cross so Peter did not see this coming. Peter did not expect this. Messiahs don't die. The Son of God doesn't give Himself up, uh, giving up His life unto death. For Peter, if Jesus was dead, then it was all gone. If He was dead, He was, of course, nothing. Nothing but a sensational prophet who provoked a tiny cult and eventually burned out in infamy. If Jesus was not alive, He certainly was not the long for Messiah. Uh, The Christ, as the Old Testament foretold, was to reign and rule as a living king forever and ever. His kingdom would have no end, the Scriptures taught. There was no space in Peter's mind for a Messiah, the son of David the king, who died. And certainly if he was dead, he could not be the son of God. Jesus spoke of being one with the Father, of possessing life with the Father. The idea that one who shares life with the Father could die was not a notion tolerable to Jesus' disciples. Furthermore, Jesus told his disciples that they would one day be with him and that they would all live forever with him in the glory of the Father. Jesus had said he would always be with them, that he would never leave them or forsake them, but that could hardly be true if he was dead and in the grave. Finally, if he was not alive but dead, Jesus couldn't be the Savior of the world. Jesus had come, he tells us, to call sinners to repentance. He had come to be their Savior. Jesus instructed sinners, if they wished to be saved, to come to Him. He told sinners that He was the only way to the Father, the only one in whom could be found eternal life. But if He remained in the grave, He couldn't be a Savior for sinners. How could He save others if He could not save Himself? What about all those nations? The Old Testament Scriptures had foretold that the nations would stream into Jerusalem. They would come into the temple. That this would be Israel's time to shine. That finally, even the ethne of the world, the Gentiles would come and be saved. We don't see them. The promises have not been fulfilled. And the one that we thought would be that son of Abraham who would bring blessing to all the nations, well, now it appears he's dead and done and gone. This is where Peter may have been in those hours after Jesus' death. If Jesus was dead, all Peter's hopes that he had truly found the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, were wrecked on the rocks of Roman malice and Jewish justice. His life was over as far as he could see. But then on Sunday, the women meet the angel. And he says to them, Tell the disciples and Peter, Tell him that he is alive. And this word comes to Peter as he's in hiding, and he thinks to himself, could it be? Could it be that my Lord lives? Could it be somehow I got this all wrong? And if he is alive, well, then he must be everything, he said he was, and in deeper and in more profound ways than I have yet comprehended. Peter surely knew that if Jesus rose from the dead, he proved he was indeed the longed for Christ. He was indeed the Son of God. He was indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus, in rising from the dead, demonstrated that he was the Messiah to come, that in overcoming sin and death and by rising triumphantly from the grave, he proved himself to be the Christ who would live forever. He became the fulfillment of David's words in Psalm 16 concerning the Messiah, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, Peter would soon learn if it didn't dawn on him immediately, surely in the days following when he met with the Lord Jesus himself and the Lord Jesus opened their mind to understand the Scriptures and to recognize that it was necessary that the Christ would suffer and die and on the third day rise again according to the Scriptures, he would have learned that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Lord's words to David. A thousand years prior in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, where the Lord said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus proved himself to be the longed-for Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David, the King whose throne would endure forever and ever. And rising from the dead, He further proved that He was the Son of God. This is the climactic note sounded at the end of John's Gospel after the resurrection. John chapter 20. Of all these things that are written about Jesus, John then concludes, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. Moreover, in overcoming sin and death, that is in dying and then rising in triumph, over sin and Satan and the grave, Jesus was demonstrating that He could be a Savior for sinners. That actually the death of the Messiah, the death of the Son of God, was a necessary chapter in the unfolding plan of redemptive history. The disciples had somehow missed this. Now we look back on the Old Testament and we wonder how is it that they missed it, but pretty much everyone missed it at that time. Later they understood this, this had to happen. How could we have a Savior in the Christ if He doesn't die as a substitute for our sins? He was all that was anticipated in the book of Moses with all the sacrifices and all the blood and all the atonement. He shed His blood as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And indeed, if He doesn't sacrifice Himself, we're still in our sins because without the shedding of blood, there can't be any forgiveness of sins. Peter would have understood Isaiah 53 and all that's stated there about our transgressions being laid on Him. The will of the Lord crushing the Son, the suffering servant, so that we could go free and be forgiven of our many trespasses, that the many could even be counted righteous. Peter would so comprehend this aspect of the Lord's death, the necessity of the death of the Son of God, and His subsequent resurrection from the dead, that he would write some 30 years later these words in 1 Peter 2, 24. He that is Jesus Himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter would have known, he would have remembered, I was straying like a sheep. There was a time in my long and dark night of the soul in the midst of all my sins and sorrows and fears I believed I couldn't be forgiven. I believed that it was all over. I was straying like a lost little lamb, but then through the help of Christ, I returned to the shepherd and overseer of my soul. I came to understand what my Lord was doing on the cross. He himself was bearing my sins in his body on the tree, and in rising from the dead, he was raised for our justification, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4. He was raised so that we could live to righteousness and to everlasting life. Peter would come to understand that as the risen living Lord, Jesus ever lived to be a Savior for sinners and to make intercessions for all those who trust in him. In a word, the resurrection meant to Peter that Jesus was everything he said he was. That he was the Christ, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. All of this in a word from these women. Tell Peter, tell Peter, he is risen. He is alive and he goes before you, Peter, and he wants you with him. Well, now, consider with me secondly. What did it mean for Peter that Jesus rose from the dead? Number one, that Jesus was in fact the longed for Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. Now, number two, what did it mean for Peter that Jesus rose from the dead? It meant that Peter, a great sinner, could be forgiven and restored. That Peter, a great sinner, could be forgiven and restored. Peter had left all to follow Jesus. He believed that in Jesus he had found his Lord and Savior. He staked everything he was and everything he had on Jesus. His commitment to follow Jesus was total. This is reflected in a number of places in the Gospels. I'll just read one to you in John chapter 6. Uh, You may know if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, it's in John 6 that Jesus feeds the 5,000. Then he goes over the Sea of Galilee. The crowds follow him. Uh, seeking bread. Uh, They haven't understood what it was Jesus was portraying for them in that miracle. He was trying to tell them that He Himself is the bread of life. And Jesus begins to talk about the cost of discipleship. And as the crowds hear, they reject Him. They leave Him. They all leave the Lord. We read in John 6, verse 66, after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter came to believe that Jesus was the pathway to salvation and eternal life. Peter believed that Jesus had the authority to forgive people of their sins. He had observed Jesus on numerous occasions, pronounced the forgiveness of sins over men and women. He himself, Peter, hoped in the forgiveness of his own sins in Jesus. But of course, for Peter, all of this depended on Jesus being alive. depended on Him being a living Savior. If He remained dead, then there was nothing left for Peter but bondage to sin and the penalty of sin. Moreover, in those moments, as Peter is in hiding, his entire consciousness was tormented by the awareness that in the Lord's final hours, he betrayed him in the most cowardly fashion possible. Peter had sinned in the most egregious way he could conceive. And as a result, Peter's spiritual life was wrecked. The state of inner confusion and turmoil that must have flooded Peter's mind and heart in the ensuing hours and days must have been overwhelming to him. I don't know that any of us could comprehend the nature of Peter's grief. His conscience was ruined as was his life and his hope of heaven. On the one hand, all that he had hoped in and Jesus appeared to be lost. Peter had been spiritually desperate. He had come to Jesus believing that he had nowhere else to turn, but it appeared now that Jesus was dead and where would he find life if the Lord was no more? On the other hand, there was no entryway back into the world of Judaism for Peter. That break was irrevocable. He had left it definitively. Peter was thus a spiritual outcast. He stuck between heaven and hell. A soul alone. Separated from any hope of eternal life and the forgiveness of his sins. So can you imagine? Can you imagine Peter now locked up in a house on a Sunday morning much like this? We're told for fear of the Jews. That if he ventured outside on that morning, it would be him next who perhaps would be crucified. He's locked up in a house for fear of the Jews. And then the women come, they knock on the door, and maybe they give the password or whatever uh, to signal that they're friends and that they're safe and that they could be uh, permitted in. Or maybe not. Maybe, maybe they just knocked on the door and weren't let in and they shout this news uh, through the door. We don't know. But we do know what they told Peter. They told him what was told to them by the angel. They would have said, Peter, we have been instructed to give a word specially for you. The word is that your Lord lives. That the Savior is alive. That he has overcome death. And Peter, he wants to speak with you. He wants to see you. He goes before you to Galilee. And his word to us was to tell you to meet him there. He wants you to be with him. And that word to Peter, it was as though the Lord himself were saying through the angel, tell Peter that I'm ready to forgive. Tell Peter that I'm ready to restore. Tell Peter that though his sins are as scarlet, they can be whiter than snow. Tell Peter that I want him with me where I'm going to be. Tell Peter that I lead him forward. In salvation and the forgiveness of sins, lead him forward in discipleship. Lead him forward in mission, and I want him to come and to be with me where I am. Tell Peter that because I live, he will live. Tell him that he can be saved. Tell him that everything will be okay. This announcement meant personal deliverance for Peter. It meant that he, a great sinner, could indeed be forgiven and restored. That he, an abject failure could be saved and could once again hope in eternal life. Peter would come to see that he is in fact the Lord. That he is the Savior for sinners. That though I have been such a failure and though I have sinned in such egregious ways, my Lord is willing to pardon. He's willing to forgive. Because he lives, I can live with him. Live with him everlastingly in eternal life. Hope is restored for Peter because Jesus is alive. What did it mean for Peter that Jesus rose from the dead? Number one, that Jesus was in fact the longed-for Christ, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Number two, that Peter, a great sinner, could be forgiven and restored. Now number three, that Peter's life had purpose and meaning. That Peter's life had purpose and meaning. As I've said already, the resurrection would have had very significant and unique personal implications for Peter and the course that Peter's life would take this comes across in the most striking fashion in that account after the resurrection of Jesus when the disciples meet him on the beach it's recorded for us only in John 21 the restoration of Peter there the recommissioning of Peter I just want to read that account for you in John 21 verse 15 when they had finished breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these he said to him yes Lord you know that I love you Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter is wonderfully, individually restored. He is restored in the most intimate and personal of ways. And he is individually and uniquely commissioned. Peter was, he became, as he would later describe himself, an eyewitness to his majesty. He was an apostle. He was a witness to the resurrected Lord. He would give his life to preaching the resurrected Christ. The resurrection meant that Peter's life had purpose and meaning in a unique and very special way. But in a more fundamental and general sense, in a sense that would apply to every believer, the resurrection brought meaning and purpose to Peter's life in that now, he would give his life to serving Christ, to following Christ, to obeying Christ, to loving Christ, to walking with Christ, to leading others to Christ, all as a disciple. Because the Lord rose from the dead, Peter would be a disciple once again. The discipleship that began when he was a fisherman, when he heard those first words from Jesus, follow me, the discipleship that continued throughout Jesus' life on earth, the discipleship that looked compromised in the wake of Jesus' death, that discipleship relationship with the Lord would be sustained and would continue after the resurrection. Peter's calling was to follow a living Savior, and this indeed is the calling of every disciple. Peter would follow the Lord throughout the rest of his life. This was the meaning and purpose given to Jesus. That he would follow Christ as his very own disciple. Because Jesus had risen, Peter would follow Him his whole life long. He would spend a lifetime following Christ. Serving Christ. Learning from Him. Walking with Him. And Jesus Himself would be with Peter. He would never leave Peter or forsake Peter. He would love him And he would make his home with him by the Holy Spirit. He would comfort him in every sorrow and suffering and loss. He would sustain him through life's trials and difficulties. He would build him up through the means of grace. And when he died, Jesus would receive Peter into glory. Or he would be given the unfading crown of life. His life, which was over as far as he could see after the death of Jesus, was given new meaning and purpose after the resurrection. Now he would follow the resurrected, living, reigning Lord as a lifelong disciple. With this word from the women, the master is alive. He is risen. Peter's life, which was wrecked, which was broken, was given new meaning, and it would never be the same. But well, now I'd like to transition from Peter's narrative to ours and to consider some points of application We've considered Peter's experience and some of the implications of the Lord's resurrection for Peter himself. Well, what about us? Have you ever thought about this? What does the resurrection mean for me? What does the resurrection mean for us? Though all of these things would have been deeply personal and meaningful to Peter in a peculiar way, they are all nonetheless true for us. So number one, because Jesus had risen from the dead, we too must acknowledge him to be the longed for Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. My friend, I wonder if you've ever considered this question. Um, what what are the implications for my life if in fact Jesus did rise from the dead? Have you ever asked that question yourself? I, have you ever asked what would it mean for my life if it's actually true that the tomb is empty? that Jesus lives, and that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world? I wonder if you've fairly evaluated that question at any point in your life. There's all kinds of evidences, of course, for the resurrection of Jesus. You might start with the fact that uh, Jesus died and rose again in precise fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, Written, we know, hundreds and even thousands of years, in a couple of cases, before Jesus was ever born. Uh, No one disputes that the Old Testament Scriptures are a genuinely ancient text. Even Richard Dawkins believes that. Uh, These are documents genuinely written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. What do you do with the fact that Moses, writing 1,500 years before Jesus ever came, wrote of this whole sacrificial system that anticipated exactly what it is that Jesus said He was going to do and eventually did? What do you do with Moses' words 1,500 years before Jesus came that God would raise up a prophet from among the Israelites who would speak God's words to them, who they would follow? What do you do with David's words a 1,000 years prior, written in the Psalms and in other places, that exactly anticipate what happened in the death of Jesus and later His resurrection? Psalm like Psalm 22, which describes almost exactly the scene we see at the cross in the gospel accounts or john 16 or excuse me psalm 16 that anticipates that he who is the messiah would die and rise again that actually this is exactly what the old testament scriptures anticipated what do you do with passages like isaiah 53 written 700 years or so before the coming of jesus that describes the necessity of the death of the suffering servant the one who would be the christ and the messiah Or Isaiah 9 that tells of the son that would be born in the city of David. These exact prophecies that found their mirror fulfillment in the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What do you do with the unity of the biblical witness across an entire millennia? All these prophecies and fulfillments, all these cross-references, written 66 different books by 40-plus different authors in different contexts in Israel's history and thereafter and in different cultural settings, and yet harmonized as one united book that reads in unity. What also do you do with the witnesses? Uh, You might start with the women at the tomb. A very odd and peculiar detail to put in there if this is all a fabrication. Uh, So in the ancient world, the testimony of women would not be received as legitimate testimony in court. Uh, But in this story that is supposed to be a big heist, uh, actually the writers of the New Testament emphasize this point, that it was the women who saw him first and first testified about the risen Lord. Strange if you're trying to persuade the world of your message. Simplest explanation seems to be that they probably were the first to see him. Moreover, uh, the disciples, they also witness Him, and in their accounts of their lives, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in the subsequent epistles, um, they give a pretty unflattering portrait of themselves. Those who were to go on to be the leaders of this new religion, this new movement, don't appear especially heroic in their accounts about the life and ministry of Jesus. What do you do with their witness? What do you do with the 500 witnesses who saw Jesus at one time? I could understand um, maybe some person was worked up into some frenzy, and they saw something as a matter of wish fulfillment that they wanted to see, and in some delirium, they began to testify that they saw the Lord. But 500 people? I mean, all of them caught up in some kind of delirious, ecstatic vision, uh, seeing something that is just a, a dream and not a reality? What do you do with those 500 witnesses? What do you do with the subsequent events immediately after the purported resurrection of Jesus? Okay, so so as far as the disciples were concerned, as far as all Messianic expectation in the context of Second Temple Judaism, no one expected the Messiah to die, including the disciples. He dies, and in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures and His own words while He was living, would have believed he rose on the third day. How do you take Peter, hiding for fear of the Jews, believing that his entire life is wrecked, to becoming the bold preacher that he becomes in Acts 2? What do you do with the fact that those early disciples, rather than staying in Jerusalem and trying to come up with some kind of self-reinforcing kind of cult where they can kind of, you know, corroborate their stories, they actually spread out. They should go forth and start telling everybody that Jesus actually is alive. How do you account for that change? Uh, these pathetic wimps, these losers who, who, who are hiding from the Jews who believe their Lord is dead, how do you explain the start of the worldwide Christian movement? Or what do you do with the fact that by the end of the first century, you have literally hundreds of thousands of people, not in Jerusalem, but all over the Mediterranean known world and beyond, professing faith In Jesus Christ, the Jewish rabbi, calling him Lord, believing that he actually rose from the dead against all odds in the face of persecution, penetrating through various cultural barriers. Wherever the gospel goes forward, people are being saved left, right, and center. How do you account for that? How do you account for the spread of Christianity thereafter? Someone might say, well, you know, you have, uh, who is it, Theodosius in 380, A.D., he makes Christianity the national religion, so that kind of explains everything. Well, hang on. How do you explain a Roman emperor whose forebears crucified this Messiah, actually now declaring this to be the state religion, actually giving it national sanction, how does it become that way? How is paganism overturned and Christianity declared to be the state religion in Rome just within three, three and a half centuries? Okay, but granted, it becomes the national religion and Christianity continues to spread. And one may say, well, that was just the product of Western hegemony that as, you know, cultures went forward and, and you have Roman roads and the lingua franca and Roman culture spreads throughout the world. Well, then Christianity spread throughout the world. Doesn't account for the spread of Christianity in China. I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about a thousand years ago. So we might talk about today, how do you explain in the Eastern world, Hundreds of millions of disciples of Jesus Christ in China, in India, in sub-Saharan Africa. This isn't a Western invention. The vast majority of Christians in the world today are not found in the West. How do you explain Christianity persisting even through the Enlightenment where people believed that the underpinnings of Christianity were surely ruined now, or or in in the rise of secularism and pluralism and postmodernism? You know, my friend, the world is not becoming less religious today, it's becoming more religious. There are more people worshiping the risen Lord this morning than at any time in human history. And that gospel, that message is finding a home in the hearts of people across all cultures, against all odds, against all sorts of opposition and persecution. The gospel is going forward, and there are people in every country in the world today who believe Jesus Christ to be the Lord. I just ask my friend, what do you do with that? I mean, can you come up with natural explanations for all these things? I have a background in social history. I've tried. I cannot come up with social historical reasons to explain how all of this took place. So I would just encourage you in this, that perhaps you have read the New Testament before. If you're not, I encourage you to read it. Uh, Just just to be fair to a worldview that is out there, read the New Testament. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the gospel accounts. But I want to encourage you, just, just try this, okay? Don't read the gospel accounts like a naturalist. That is to say, something like supernatural resurrection, rising from the dead, is impossible. I would challenge you Give one fair reading through the Gospels and assume that it's possible, it's possible that one could rise from the dead. Just encourage you on your own, read through the Gospels and see what you find. Does it feel as though these men are lying? Does it feel as though this is a fabrication? See what you see, see what you find. If you will read the Bible, granting that possibility that actually he did rise from the dead. Of course, we who are Christians, we don't need to be persuaded. These proofs are very persuasive to us. The ultimate proof, of course, for us is that Jesus has revealed Himself to us very deeply, very personally to be the Messiah. He saved us from our sins. We have come to see as as, as if scales from our eyes have been removed that He is in fact the Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. If Jesus rose from the dead, then He is. David's greater son who would reign on his father's throne forever. If he did rise from the dead, he is indeed the son of God. And he is indeed the savior of the world who can save even us. Second point of application, more briefly. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, we, a room full of great sinners, can be forgiven. Because Jesus is alive we can all have the hope of the forgiveness of our sins. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate refutation to all hopelessness about sin. All defeatism. He he could never save me. He who defeated Satan, the power of sin and death. He who could save even Peter. He can save any one of us. The word of the angel the women to Peter is to tell him that though he is a great sinner he can be saved. Though he has failed so miserably. Though he has behaved so ignobly. Though he has fallen so short. He can be saved. And this word is meant to come to us very deep in personal ways as well. Tell Johnny. That though he be a great sinner, he can be saved. Tell Ed, that though he's failed so miserably, he can be forgiven. Tell Dawn, uh, that so she has so often failed the Lord, that she's sinned in so many ways, she can be forgiven. Tell, tell Alex, that he's such a failure, I'm ready to forgive and restore. This word is meant to come to us personally through our text in Mark 16, verse 7. Through the words spoken to Peter. That though we fail, though we sin in egregious ways, the Lord Jesus died for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. The resurrection is the dawning of hope for all those who have an awareness of their sins and all the ways they have shamefully betrayed the Lord. For every person here, there is the hope of salvation because Jesus is alive. Romans 8 and verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Thirdly and finally, and I'll say this in closing, because Jesus has risen from the dead, our lives can have purpose and meaning. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, our lives can have purpose and meaning. I don't mean that in some kind of sentimental way, like that's good for you Christians. good to have a sense of purpose. You know, like, like, like a retired man or woman that says, you know, I really, after work, I really didn't have a sense of purpose, and so I took up gardening. And something about, you know, planting flowers and seeing them go, really gives me a sense of purpose. That's not what I'm talking about. Easter for us is not a quaint holiday. The resurrection of Jesus is the very center of our lives. Our lives' meaning and purpose depends on the Christ who died and rose again. He's the center of our lives. We follow him. We're his disciples. Listen, those of us here who are Christians, we have staked everything on the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ and the fact that Jesus did walk out of the tomb. If he didn't, we are nothing. There is nothing left for us but a sort of nihilistic black hole. Just just nothing. Our, Our lives crumble. The only meaning and purpose to be had is in relation to the risen Son of God. And that's true for every one of us, whether or not we've embraced Jesus or not. If Jesus is really alive, well then there can be no meaning found apart from Him. The only meaning and purpose that can be had is in knowing Him, in worshiping Him, in following Him. I was meeting with a brother recently. Uh, He's advanced in years. He knows that his life may not be much longer, and he wanted to work with me to plan his funeral, wanted me to speak at it. And he was sharing to me the text that was on his heart. He wanted this written on his headstone. He wanted it preached at his funeral, and it's found in John 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is eternal life, to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. But what is there? you outside of the forgiveness of sins? What is there for you outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you discovered meaning and purpose? We all want it. People are finding it in keeping a rose alive for a season. People are finding it in beach houses. People are finding it in a growing 401K. People are finding it in some sense of self-achievement in life. My friend, as we said last week, in a hundred years we're all a box of bones. In a hundred years we're all fertilizer for the worms. A hundred years from now this hand is going to be a corpse, meaning and purpose in a raised flower bed, in compound interest, in sports teams, and in just another hit of pleasure just another weekend at the beach uh, just just another stroll outside another indulgence in uh, sin uh, another experience of some high is that where meaning's found we believe that the son of god rose from the dead we believe that he is living even now and we, we believe that every person's destiny is defined in relation to him If Jesus is alive, all that matters is where we stand in relation to Christ. The good news, friends, is that Jesus, because he lives now, can save anyone. You can be saved from your sins and be forgiven of your sins and be brought into a living and vital relationship with the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This day I tell you, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, turning from sin and becoming His disciple, just as Jesus His—excuse me, Peter became His disciple, you can be saved. If you give your life to following Christ, He will be pleased to receive you. There is no sin that you've committed or can yet commit that will disqualify you from His love and His mercy and grace. There is nothing that will put you beyond the pale. His forgiveness is for all those who turn from sin and trust in Him. All those who look only to his blood and righteousness, at his power to defeat sin and the grave. For all those who trust in Christ, they will be saved. We can all be made alive, we can all be given this meaning and purpose and significance if we make Jesus the center of our lives, the living and reigning Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the many records that you have left for us throughout the Scriptures, especially in the Gospels of many people who were so desperate, so sinful, so full of shame, so full of self-loathing, so full of fear, who the Lord himself was pleased to receive and save. We thank you that Jesus was eager to receive sinners. Jesus, as he was among us, invited sinners to come to him. The broken and the contrite, the weary and the heavy laden, the thirsty, the hungry. Those who wanted to see life after death. Those who wanted to know what it was like to truly live. Those who wanted freedom from sin's bondage, sin's penalty. We thank you that Jesus Christ is a Savior for sinners just like us. That his heart and his will is exactly suited to our condition, to our need for a Savior. We pray, Father, that you would let nothing else intrude, nothing else to become an obstacle to receiving Christ as a Savior for our sins. We pray that you would awaken in all of us great hope. That even we could have life through the sinless Son of God. That we would see in the death of Jesus, that we would see in His wounds our healing. Uh, That we would see in those scars on His hands the punishment that was due to our sins. That we would see in His blood that sacrifice which can make us clean before a holy God. Help us then also to see in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, his triumphant rising from the dead, the end of sin's curse and power, the end of death for all those who trust in Christ, the end of Satan's reign and rule in our lives. Please, Lord, do this for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.